How you guys doing? Great. Uh, go bag tent is right outside this door. If you guys don't know what go bags are, uh, go bags is a way that uh, my gospel community were trying to step into and help some things in our community. When when kids get taken out of homes by child welfare services, they usually just get taken. They don't have anything that goes with them, and it really, I, I think, throws them for a loop. They have, there's nothing that's consistent in their life at that point. And and this isn't about how somebody feel, feels about child welfare services or anything. This is about the kids. And so what we're doing is we're filling these things called go bags. When kids get taken out of home, they can get a tooth, toothpaste and a toothbrush and some pajamas and some underwear. So when they get to someplace new, they have some things that are actually theirs. And so our RGC kind of is partnering with Child Welfare Services to get those things. And so if you took a go bag, please return them. Uh, if you... Today's the last day to turn them in, by the way, but we'll take them this week, okay, if you forget. But you could also, we got another service, you can run home and bring them back. If you haven't grabbed a go bag and fill it up and you'd like to, grab it, run to the store and come back and drop it off. It's going to be great. We just want to, it's for the children. <clears throat> it's for the kids. So, yeah. I'm really hoping I actually have a voice in the next service because Michelle said she couldn't do anything because her voice is gone. I'm almost dead today, too. I'm like, Ugh, I can't say anything. So, welcome to Element. If you're new... Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about today, as well as some questions to go deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, click on More and then Events in Uversion, and we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Genesis 15, verse 17, and it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So uh, let's pray. Father, uh, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand that we get to be in relationship with you, that you have come and you have sought us and you you have brought us into your family. And that we would in turn live out these lives of great faith in who you are because of how you have rescued us and how you have saved us. We'd be able to think about that and live in humbleness and grace because of the things that you have done. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series of element right now called What in the World Part 2. It's Part 2 because Part 1 at the end of last year, I went through 10 different things in the scriptures that sometimes made me scratch my head and go, what in the world is that there for? And then I, during that series, I asked you to write down your what in the world questions, and we come back this year and we'd answer your questions. And i got to tell you, element, if you didn't know this, is very last minute. <laughs> Okay, seriously. So it was 10 weeks. Throughout the first nine weeks, I got about 14 to 15 to 16 questions. And then the last week and a half, I got 16 more. Okay, so you guys, seriously. All right? I mean, whatever. So the one I'm doing today is a question I got. It's the very first one. And I determined the very first question I got we were going to do no matter what it was. And so this is it because early bird gets the worm. Should count for something. And you may have read the title of today's message and gotten really excited, smoking pot. Woo! Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you're not because you'd be totally mellowed out if you were, but. Oh, where's Sean? Right? No? Okay. Anyway, uh, this message is not about smoking pot. It's about a smoking pot and a, a torch. Uh, I know if you're in California, you're like, anytime you're smoking pot, you only think of, of one thing. And so you probably want to know what do I think about pot? You know, it's legal, so, so what, do I, what do I think about it? Well, I would say this. 
Uh, I think a question for you is, if you want to, why do you want to smoke it, if, if you do? If your desire is just to get high, then that's a wrong reason. Like, if, if you drink, and your sole goal through drinking alcohol is to get a buzz, or get wasted, or forget your problems, then it's wrong. Like, I like beer, my wife hates it, my wife likes wine, I hate wine, and so we're a good match, right? You know? Anyway. But if the whole point of alcohol is just to drink it to get wasted, well, that, that's actually an issue. And it seems like for most people, the sole reason that they wanted pot legal was to get high. And so I see that as an issue. But we're not here to talk about Mary Jane or ganja or whatever. We're going we're gonna to talk about smoking pots. Uh, this is the first question that we got. So here it is. In Genesis fifteen seventeen, it says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the animals Abraham cut in half at God's direction. What is the significance of the fire pot and the torch moving between the halves? And if you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis 15 because that's where we're going to be with this. And the significance in the end of this is everything. I know just reading the question, you're probably thoroughly confused and have no idea what's going on. Uh, that's okay. Uh, in the end, you're going to understand that this is about God's salvation of us, his intention to save people. And so I'm going to kind of jump through this as we, as I read through the verses, and in the end I'll explain it. And well, you're going to be, you know, so much more by the end of today. You're going to be so glad that you were here. And if you're not, you get your money back. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody got it. <laughs> Genesis 15, starting in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram, God will eventually change his name to Abraham, so that's who we're talking about here. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So previous to this, God has shown up to Abraham, and he has said, I am going to give you a son. I know your wife is barren. You're 65 years old, but I am going to give you a son. that will lead to a son, to a son, and eventually leads to God's son, Jesus, he says, I'll give you inheritance, I'll give you a land. None of these things have come to pass yet. Verse 5, and he, got, and he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he, God, said to Abraham, or him, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Verse 7, And he, God, said to him, Abraham, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he, God, said to him, Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abraham, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Then verses 11 through 16, God makes some predictions and promises what will happen to Abraham's family. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, you probably hear me read that, and you're probably as thoroughly confused as you were when we started the question. That's okay. I'm going to give you a metaphor I, I heard someone give that I thought explained this really well, so I'm going to put it in my own words as, as we do this. Uh, let's say you are trying to sell a car. Uh, my first car that, that I ever sold was a 1976 Ford Courier pickup. It was Toyota Terracotta, which is essentially orange ugly as it could be. My dad gave it to me when it was 11 years old. It was a rust bucket when I got it. It was a rust bucket when I sold it. I got my first four tickets and two accidents within two, well, year and a half in that thing. It wasn't me. It was the truck, okay? It wasn't me. 
my best friend at the time stole it because I let him sit in it during first period at school. He drove it out to Rock Front Ranch on 166 and drove it into a cliff. He was eating onion dip at the time, and apparently it's all over the dashboard. And to the day I sold that thing, I could never get rid of the onion dip out of the dashboard. <laughs> Smelt great, so, especially on a hot day. It, 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 was, it was wonderful. Now, so imagine you're trying to sell this amazing vehicle, right? And somebody calls you up on the phone and say his name is John. And John says, hey, I saw your car on Craigslist or the photo ad of the Trade Express, and I want to come see it. And you're thrilled because you want to get a new car, one that doesn't have a pair of pliers for a window winder and a rag for a gas cap. Okay, so you're really excited. So you set a time. John shows up, comes and looks at the truck, and he asks if he can drive it. So you hand him the keys. He gets ready to drive off. And you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Collateral. Uh, where's your car? Oh, I parked around the corner. Oh, okay, have fun. So John then takes off in your car. Half an hour goes by. You're like, well, he's not back yet. Something weird's going on here. So you go and you, you decide, I'm going to walk around the corner to make sure his car's there. And you walk around the corner, and you realize you never asked what kind of car he actually had because you're a dummy. Right? And you're like, oh no, what do I do? So you go back on your porch and you wait a couple more hours. And at this point, you're fairly convinced that John has just stolen your truck. So what do you do? What do you do? Call the police. Exactly. The popo. You call the police. Why? Why? Because that's what you do when your car gets stolen. Now think about how natural and normal that sounds to you in American culture. You call the police. It's a reasonable response. And yet it's really astonishing. You pick up your phone, you call a number, and an officer comes out and shows up and asks you questions and writes up a report, has this form. He contacts other people who contact other people. And within moments of you talking to him, there's a whole network of people out looking for your truck. And then imagine they find it. It's about three miles away at the 7-Eleven. They catch John walking out of there with a bundle of firewood under one arm and a Red Bull and vanilla scented air freshener because he said the car needed it. Okay? Now, here's the weird part, right? When they questioned John why he's driving your truck, John said, you gave him the keys. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's his answer. I assumed it was fine because that nice man handed me the keys and I drove off in it, which is technically what happened, right? (laughs) It's exactly what happened. And when the officers tell you this, you're like, but he didn't give me any money. He drove off, and it was a test drive. And so when the officers explain to John, you have to give someone money if you're going to drive off in their car, he replies, well, I've never heard of that before. What a great idea. (laughs) The end. Okay? Now, that should sound fairly confusing and weird to you as a story, especially ending that way. And if, you ever, if it doesn't, please don't ever ask to buy something from me because I'm not selling it to you, okay? But you find that story strange and fairly incomprehensible because you have a deeply ingrained sense of how business is supposed to work. You agree to terms. You each provide something that you're committed to, like money, car, etc. If you fail to do your part, there are then legal consequences for that. That's why we have contracts and lawyers and why we have forms to fill out and why when you buy things with your credit card, you have to sign for it because you're agreeing, I'm going to pay for this thing. You're agreeing to uphold your end of the bargain. This is true for buying houses and buying cars and grabbing coffee at Starbucks, either to work or on the way home from work, or some of you who are really addicted both ways, back and forth, two parties agree to a deal. I will give you $16 a year, and you will send me 12 Game Informer magazines, okay? so, something like that. The entire system exists and survives and works because a good portion of the time it is, it is undergirded by this idea of law enforcement. 
it works because we have a judicial system that punishes people for not upholding their end of the deal. If you don't pay for your Starbucks coffee and you run out with it, what happens? They call the police and they come and chase you down. But think about this, okay? You go back at least 4,000 years in human history. Who did you call when someone did not uphold their end of the deal? Before there were all these massive, complicated systems of law enforcement and insurance and car titles and transfers and cashier's checks and 911 numbers and police scanners, before there were these elaborate structures that maintained all of the justice, how did people ever trust each other to uphold their end of the deal? How did business ever get done when there's no one to call? Now, I'm greatly simplifying this for you, not because you're simple, but I'm just trying to make it simple for you. The answer to this is how you did this was this word called Covenant. Covenant, okay? In the ancient world, when you entered into a deal with someone, you made a covenant with them. It is an oath to do your part. Now, there's two kinds of covenants in the ancient world. The first one is called a unilateral covenant, and that is made between a more powerful party and a less powerful party. And then there's what's called a bilateral covenant. A bilateral covenant would be between equal partners, like, like you and me. If we entered into something, we'd probably be pretty equal in, in what we did. Now, a unilateral covenant with a more powerful party and a less powerful party, the more powerful party would only enter into, into it to get something that they didn't necessarily have before. could be uh, grazing lands or water rights or rite of passage or something like that. So how would you get this covenant done? What would you do? Well, firstly, you'd get some animals like a cow or a ram or a goat or a dove, and and sometimes all of the above, depending on how important the covenant was. Second, you would chop them in half. You're like, ew! Yeah, exactly. Chop them in half. So bring a saw and a sharp knife and some boots. You don't mind getting dirty, okay? Because that's what's going to happen. Thirdly, you lay out the halves, and they face each other, and they form an aisle. Fourth, you would stand side by side with the other person you were going to enter into a covenant with, and you'd state what you were going to do. Me, I will provide one 1976 Ford Courier Toyota Terracotta with a rag for a gas cap and rattles over the road when it goes over 60 miles an hour. And then John would say, I will pay $1,000 for the privilege of owning this majestic vehicle. Okay? Why? Because the next part, fifthly, you would then walk between the halves of the animals and you would say something like this, may I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. Okay? So do you see the power in something like that in the ancient world? Do you see the significance in the sort of ritual? I mean, leave out the violence to animals kind of thing, but just what it is. That means you see the point. In earlier cultures where systems of justice and enforcement were more more primitive than we'd say today or maybe non-existent, your word was your bond. And so rituals like these were like the glue that held this people together so they could trust one another. May I become like these animals if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant. Some people even believe that this is where we get the term cutting a deal from. I'm not one of those, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Now, all of that leads you to Genesis 15, in in which you see God reminding Abraham of all of his promises. Then Abraham trying to remind God of all the grand promises that were made to him that a great tribe would actually come from him. Abraham is having a very hard time believing God's promises to use him to do something like this in the world, especially because of his words, what can you give me since I remain childless? What can you give me? 
Abraham, this is a story that's going to kick off our understanding and idea of redemption and restoration and rescue of what God does for his people. It's going to kick it into gear. That's my car metaphor, so to speak. So God tells a man that he's going to be the father of a nation. And that man doesn't have any kids for a really, really, really long time. And it's kind of weird from the start. God then will take this guy who still hasn't had a kid outside, show him the stars, and says, so shall your offspring be. This is how many descendants is going to come from you. And it says that Abraham trusted God when God said, trust me. And the next verse reads, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You've got to understand, this is a really big deal in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the gods were believed to be distant and petulant and angry and detached, waiting for you to offer them something so that their anger could be appeased, to keep them on your side. That's how people saw the gods. Do whatever it takes to keep their favor. Sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice. Give whatever you need to give. Go to whatever lengths you have to to pacify the anger of those gods. But the scripture is a story of God who reveals himself to people. He says, no, there are no other gods. I am the only God. And I am going to come, and I am going to rescue, and I am going to redeem you. God insists that he is going to do something for mankind, because mankind cannot do anything for themselves. And he makes his promises first with this guy named Abraham. This is a story that is totally upside down in the ancient world. It is so fresh, the early readers probably had no idea what to even do with it. A God who wants to do good for people? What in the world? See what I did there? And Abraham, he believes it. He believes it. He trusts it. Then God tells Abraham all the things that have been promised. Abraham says, how can I know this will happen? God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, and, and a ram. You know where this is going, right? Because I just explained to you where this is. You're like, oh, what's going to happen here? You read, Abraham brought these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. God didn't tell Abraham what to do with them. Abraham already knew what to do with them because Abraham lives in that culture. He and God are going to enter into a covenant. They're going to cut a deal, so to speak. Abraham does what people in his day did in situations like this. God then told Abraham all sorts of things that are going to happen to Abraham's descendants. The sun sets, and in the darkness it says, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God then reaffirms his promises to Abraham, and the story in the scriptures move on. It's not the end of the story, but it's the end of this, because Abraham's story now moves forward from this point. But a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the halves of the animals. The what in the world question is just that. What in the world is the significance of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? As, as simply as I can put it before I'll explain it, is that this is a sign and a symbol of the presence of God. I mean, there's, there's so much more to this story, but eventually what will happen is Israel is going to build a temple. And in this temple, they have a thing called a censer in, or a brazier. And in this, it's going to have incense and it's smoke and fire that sits in here. And that's to remind them of the presence of God. A little bit after this, Abraham will actually have his promised son. He will take the son up to a place called Mount Moriah where the temple will one day be built. And Abraham, as he walks up this mountain, it says he has the censer, this brazier with him, and it's got incense. It's got flame and smoke in there to remind him of the presence of God. It probably reminds him of this exact moment in this place where God comes and passes through these pieces in smoke 
and flame. What you see is this is how God reveals himself many times throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Israelites, they will go and they will leave captivity in the land of Egypt. And if you've seen the movie, the cartoon, or the live-action one, What it shows you is that during the night there is a pillar of fire. And during the day there is this cloud that follows the Israelites and and leads them. And And what you see is at night when it's dark you see the flame. But during the day it's bright enough you don't see the flame so you just see the smoke. God leads them out in smoke and flame. You get to Mount Sinai where God gives them the Ten Commandments. And God comes upon that mountain it tells you in smoke and flame. When the Israelites are wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, they build a tabernacle for God to tabernacle to live with them. And when God comes into that tabernacle, he comes into it in smoke and flame. When they build the temple in Israel, God's presence goes and invades that temple, and he does it in smoke and flame. Later, what you'll see is that at Pentecost, you will have the disciples sitting around this table and God shows up and brings the Holy Spirit and he does it in smoke and flame and voices. This is who God is. He continually does this. And so when you see the smoke and flame that passes through these pieces, it is what we call a theophany. It is Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. When you see God in the flesh, in the Old Testament, it is typically Jesus. And so Jesus shows up in smoke and flame. It doesn't mean that there is a a pot of smoke that suddenly grew legs or floated through the pieces. It's that in, in Hebrew, it means that the person showed up in smoke and flame and passed through the pieces. Jesus comes and shows up and walks through the pieces. Are you following with me? Okay, so four of you, great. Okay, it is interesting here that God alone is the one who passes through the animals. If you've been listening to everything I said about covenant so far, you would think, well, Abraham and God, they're making a covenant. Why doesn't Abraham pass through those animals? Well, in this story, God is the only one who passes through. And then again, it's another example of how unlike us God is. Genesis 15 starts with something very familiar to people in that day. But then it takes a totally unexpected term because God promises to uphold both ends of the deal. God promises to covenant and hold up both sides of the deal. If Abraham fails on his part, God will still be faithful because that's who God is. Abraham is being invited in to trust God, to believe that God is good and God has his best interest in mind and that God will be faithful to him even when Abraham makes a mess of things, which happens in the very next chapter. In the very next chapter, he goes and he gets this woman named Hagar and he makes a baby by her because he thinks God's taken too long. And God shows up and he says, I told you, you will have a baby through your wife. Dummy, come on. But God restores and redeems him again and again and again because God is the one who passed through the pieces and God says, I will uphold my covenant with you. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus because we are not perfect. We're not perfect, but he is. And it's meant to remind us that God is a good, holy, generous God. And he can actually be trusted. And all those stereotypes in the Old Testament about God being angry and volatile, they're just stereotypes. We'll actually talk about this in another What in the World question I I have later. What we have to understand is any covenant God made with Israel is what is called that unilateral covenant. There's a more powerful party and a less powerful party, and the less powerful party is us. Okay, we're not the more powerful party. So what does God get out of this covenant? 
We know what Israel gets. Israel gets redemption and deliverance in the Exodus. We get a way of life that makes sense. We get salvation and hope and restoration. We get a destiny that makes sense. But what does God get out of any covenant? I mean, God knows the human race. He knows the heartache and ingratitude and darkness and sin of all of us. So what does God get out of a covenant? Well, God gets to continue to show his glory and his good. God gets to bless. He gets to love. He gets to pour out all the affection and warmth of his infinite heart. What does God get out of this covenant? What God gets is he gets stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked little sons and daughters. That's us. That's what he gets. Like, that's not a deal. Exactly. Exactly. It's not a deal. But God chooses to love us. That's God. That should make us an immensely humble people. We should not be those who run around and say, well, I'm saved and you're not. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we should be a humble people who speak of this great God who has rescued and saved us. This is why the writers and the readers of the Old Testament were undone by the notion of a God who is powerful, who can do whatever he wants, would bind himself and restrict himself to the covenant. But that's what God's love does. That's why throughout the Hebrew scriptures, they would call him over and over and over, not just God. They would call him 285 times the God of the covenant. The God of the covenant. There is no other God in any other religious faith that does this because there is no other God. Let me reiterate this again. Does Abraham walk through the pieces? No, only Jesus does. And that means that God will fulfill his promises no matter what. That God obligates himself to Abraham and those who follow Jesus, his descendants, no matter what. We call this an unconditional covenant. That God says, no matter what, I will save sinners. I will save lost people. And years later, Jesus Christ, Son of God, descendant of the Son of Abraham, comes and walks through these pieces and dies on a cross for us. It is humbling. God pledges here himself to his own covenant because man has nothing to offer. Nothing whatsoever. Jesus here is foreshadowing his own death. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is showing what Jesus would do to save us. God commits himself to death. It is extraordinary. Abraham, you will get a son that leads to a son, to a son, to a son that eventually leads to Jesus. You will get an inheritance. You will have land. I'll bring you into my family. Abraham says, how can I be sure? And Jesus says, I will commit myself to death to make it happen. And Jesus becomes a man, and he dies a brutal, bloody death on a cross to bring about the terms of the covenant given to Abraham that he would bless all nations of the earth. We are part of that blessing. Covenant is about devotion. Can you imagine God saying, I will die to share my love with you? And then he actually does it. We, as people, treat this as being so small. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You, Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Guys, do you not understand what this really means? Our God is faithful. Our God is good. The good news of the gospel is that we all get to become new. We are invited in. We are redeemed. We are restored because of what Jesus has done, because of the covenant. This is beautiful. God is way more serious about love and affection and devotion than we are. Why does Jesus die? Because we brought sin and death and separation into the world. We are people who have bound ourselves to sin with ties of blood so deep, they're like chains, we can never break them. God says to Adam and Eve, in the book of Genesis, you sin, you die. 
And it's true, they died. But God promises a Redeemer to save and restore them. And you get to Genesis 15 again, and here is God again saying, I am going to be that Redeemer, and this is what I'm going to do to save you. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So Jesus dies in our place as our perfect lamb. Isaiah 53.12, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, God, who comes in human flesh and lived without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. It is why Jesus alone can reconcile a holy God and a sinful people. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, and you're the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's like I should be having the, like an old preacher with a hanky. Woo! Get going! Right? You're the unrighteous. I'm the unrighteous. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There is nothing, nothing more important in Christianity than the death and the atoning grace of who Jesus is and what he does on the cross to rescue and save us. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no relationship with the good and holy and gracious God. Jesus brings about the terms of the covenant. The cost of forgiveness and restored relationship with Christ, with God, is Christ's life. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is why we call it good news. Not that Jesus died, but that Jesus rescued and saved us because we were, had nothing to offer. We had nothing to offer. Guys, religion tells you you have to be good enough for God to like you. Do enough good things, then maybe God will be nice enough to you. No, no. This tells you that we don't have to have it all together to follow Jesus and be saved. We need to understand that what we need to understand is our need. We need to see who we really are. And all we need is nothing but Him. Jesus comes and He walks the pieces of the covenant to bring us life and redemption and restoration, which I will tell you is way better news than smoking pot. Right? I'm telling you guys, it it is amazing what God promised to do and then brought about because of his own promises. God is not a God who says, oh, well, you know, figure out a way to me. Better work really hard. Oh, here's the ladder. It extends to hell and it's covered in bacon grease. Good luck. He doesn't do that. God comes to us and rescues us and saves us. Everything that separates you from God or from even another person in this world was paid for and taken care of in the person of Jesus on the cross. He is the one who passed through the pieces for us. When we go to communion, that's part of what we remember. That's why you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken in two for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice because it reminds us of this brutal, bloody mess that Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is that good. And so when you take communion, you you remind yourself of that, who he is and what he has done. There's going to be some people in the back to to pray with you if you need prayer this morning. Maybe you've never uh, come to a place in your life where you surrendered to Jesus or you thought it was all about works and trying to make God love you and like you. That's not how it is. God already does love you. God has already extended himself to you. God has walked through the pieces for you already to draw you home. He's invited you into his covenant. Uh, the band's going to come up. As, did you talk to Mike, by the way? You know, okay. Uh, as they, and as they do, like I said, you can go pray with somebody in the back. Um, there's, 
there's offering box on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. And begin to talk about what this really means to be a people who get to partake and live in Jesus' covenant. I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I could just impart to you how I think and feel about these things sometimes because you'd be like, oh, and it's still not even deep enough. The, the humbleness of knowing what God has done and how that should infect our lives so that we live out the goodness of the gospel every single day with everybody we come into contact with. God saves us individually as people, but he saves us into community with one another. So we would go out and live out the terms of this covenant with one another and the rest of the world. We have been invited to extend that gracious covenant to everybody. We have to go out and talk about it. I mean, no one's going to understand the brutal, bloody mess. It's where we talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection and the goodness that, that he has died to fulfill the terms of the covenant to bring us into relationship with God. And that no matter how far you've run and no matter where you've gone, our God is there rescuing and bringing you and drawing you back to himself because he is that good. And so we are a people who live in the understanding of God's covenant with us. Um, Michelle's actually going to pray for us this morning. I told her, since you're making me lead, she's going to have to pray. So she's going to pray for us. Because I'd like you to sit with that this week a little bit. Just begin to think and remember the ideas of the terms of the covenant that God has brought around. That His goodness, He set out to fulfill both ends. And when you feel like you are not good enough, you know why? Because we aren't good enough. None of us are. But He is. And He fulfills all of the covenant to bring us in relationship with Him so we can be restored and renewed and have new life. That is our great and good God. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling to be reminded that um, really we have nothing to offer you in return for what you give us. That It was you alone that walked through those pieces, and it's you alone that could fulfill those kinds of promises that you've made to us. And I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, but that we, we would recognize how amazing that is, that the brokenness and the destruction we see around us that we all experience that those are the consequences of our sin and that's what we deserve and yet you offer us a way out of that and you offer us a way toward redemption and restoration and the promise of being made new so i pray that you would help us to rejoice in that that um we would see that changes everything for us it changes how we live on a daily basis how we interact with the people around us And in those moments where we may doubt your character or if you uh, really are faithful, remind us of the cross where you showed us once and for all who you are, that you were willing to die for us, not because of anything we could give, but just because you were that good and loving I pray that that image, that that truth would be fresh in our hearts and that that would be the good news that we share with the world around us. We thank you for loving us, God. Amen.